Hi, I'm Natalie Pearson at the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre, and I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by not one but two special guests today. So our first guest is Sharon Davies, who is Associate Professor in the School of Languages and Social Sciences at Auckland University of Technology in New Zealand. So if you take a look at Sharon's Twitter profile, she describes herself as Indonesia obsessed, and this gives you an idea of the primary location of her research. Her early research focused on gender and sexuality, but more recently she has incorporated themes relating to surveillance, social media and policing. Sharon is the incoming director of the Herb Faith Centre at Monash University, and we are just hoping that there are some flights by the time she's due to start in July. Sharon, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Also joining us is Najma, Sharon's recently completed PhD student at Auckland University of Technology. And she's just returned home to Indonesia, where she is a lecturer at Surajaya University in South Sumatra. And Najma's research looks at health and specifically HIV care. Najma, thank you for joining us. Thank you to invite me to. So in today's podcast, we're going to be talking about care and COVID in Indonesia, and we're going to focus on HIV in particular. But I'd like to start by asking you, Najma, to tell us what is the healthcare system like in Indonesia? What I can say about healthcare system in Indonesia is complex and fragmented. And the main focus still on the curative treatments comparing to the preventions. All people can access health services, but not all people can access good health services. For me, if I have money, I can go to the private hospitals, but people who don't have money, they just use their public insurance, then there is a fragmented and a bit long queue. Hmm. Fortunately, in Indonesia has reformed the health system a few times to provide universal health coverage. And it provides equality and equity for healthcare access, particularly for the poor. But unfortunately, Indonesia has a lack of capability to provide a good health system and the will of the government is limited. Therefore, the private health sectors may fill the gaps of health needs in Indonesia. But I have two concerns about health system in Indonesia. Like, Firstly, health system in Indonesia is not built to protect society as long as the government has provided chance for the private sectors to capitalize healthcare in Indonesia. And secondly, my concern about healthcare in Indonesia is every election, every candidate promised to build a good health system in Indonesia. However, in practice, we should separate the health system and the political wills to build the long term a good health system in Indonesia. Thank you, Najma. And maybe you can add something here, Sharon, as well. But what sort of disparity is there between the availability of hospitals and doctors and even ventilators between the urban areas and the rural areas in Indonesia? In Indonesia, we have four doctors and 12 beds per 10,000 people. So we also have less than three beds in intensive care per 100 people in Indonesia. The country only have 8,558 ventilators and 105 isolation rooms with ventilators nationwide. The figures is exclusion from the ventilators and isolation rooms provided at emergency hospital in Indonesia. And of course, when you compare this, these numbers with Indonesia's population, which is 260, 270 million people, they sound like big numbers, but you know, relatively speaking, they're actually tiny. Najma, you mentioned briefly the universal healthcare program. 
what's the history of this program? Politicians have been promising something like this for a long time. So how did it actually come about? Before 2014, the government provide the regional autonomy to provide their own healthcare system. So we have our local insurance for the poor to access the health services. After 2014, particularly after Indonesian reform for the health sectors, so they combine all the different regional healthcare to be one that we call that BBJS. So it's universal coverage for all people in Indonesia. So a new universal security systems to provide equality and equity of healthcare for the poor. Sharon, is there anything you'd like to add to that in terms of the history and the aims of the National Health Insurance Program and perhaps its implementation as well? So as Najma mentioned, in 2014, Indonesia recognised the need to try and really kickstart a health insurance scheme for all people living in Indonesia. And partly that was because the health statistics are in many respects quite dire. And so I just had a look today at some of those statistics. And, and we're talking now, of course, right in the midst of COVID-19. But even aside from that, I read last year, so in 2019, 67,000 Indonesians died of tuberculosis. And we have statistics like 60, around 65% of men smoke. There's 10 million Indonesians living with diabetes. There's a lot of underlying health concerns before even COVID-19 came in. So in 2014, Indonesia recognised this and really tried to ramp up the provision of health care to meet these needs. But the implementation of that has been certainly lacking. And I'm sure there's been goodwill and good rhetoric. But the fact is that Indonesia is just such an enormous country spread over so many islands with 260 million people. And even where there is political will, issues get politicised to the point that disseminating funding that should be directed towards healthcare ends often gets siphoned off to other places. And so those pretty dire healthcare needs are just going to be exacerbated as Indonesia tries to deal with COVID-19. So there are some other issues that arise out of this national healthcare program as well. And, and one of these is that it is being rolled out within an increasingly populist context in Indonesia in which behaviours such as extramarital sex or intravenous drug use may be criminalised. So what are the potential consequences of the National Healthcare Programme for people with HIV? Indonesia is increasingly, you know, its democratic system is becoming increasingly not well-functioning and increasingly populist. And what this means is that when people are trying to get elected, they just say things that might get them elected. And so often people who are elected to positions of power are there not because they have any skill in terms of political expedience or getting things done. They're there for other connections. And so in addition to an increasingly populist and not well-functioning democracy, Indonesia has been undergoing this morality turn for possibly since the start of democracy in 1998, but certainly it's been exacerbated since 2016. So the things that are making it more difficult for people to access healthcare, particularly in regard to things like HIV and STI, so sexually transmitted illnesses, is that being a moral person has become very much a political issue. And we see this in terms of the LGBT crisis, which started in 2016. There were all sorts of efforts by religious organizations and government to persecute this community. 
We saw in 2017 that the Constitutional Court put forth a proposed change to make all sex outside of heterosexual marriage illegal. And that was narrowly defeated in a 5-4 vote. So it almost passed. And in fact, it was only not passed because the Constitutional Court thought it was outside their jurisdiction. It wasn't that they disagreed with this. We had in 2019, the Criminal Court propose a whole lot of changes. In the West, one of them became known as the Bali Bonking Bill, which would have, again, criminalised all sex outside of marriage. And in 2020, we've had the Family Resilience Bill, which is again trying to make sex outside of marriage illegal. And if that happens, which is looking increasingly likely, then the spread of HIV is just going to grow very rapidly because suddenly condoms can be used as evidence in a court of law that you've had sex outside of marriage. People will be very reluctant to try and access contraceptives and practice safe sex. It'll be almost impossible, in fact, because it will be a criminal activity to have sex outside of marriage. So the impact on HIV is going to be quite devastating. Please, Nadwa, over to you. Uh, in terms of HIV, most of the participants of my study are mothers and wives who got infected HIV from her husband. And the first intention, the first words that usually come from the health services when they access the health services to protect their baby is, are you a sex worker? Are you being unfaithful for your husband? Because your husband is negative for you got HIV. So the morality concerns sometimes make women reluctant to come to, to the health services. So the health services is there for HIV, but women need to be empowered to come to the health services. That's why in my research show, that's why only one out of 10 pregnant women with HIV come to the health services to gain their rights to have healthy babies. There's obviously a lot of stigma associated with having HIV already. And then, and then on top of that, you put this increased conservative moralism and you're getting these very dangerous consequences that are posing risks to the health of the mother and then potentially also the child. So what steps can Indonesia take to tackle this increased conservative moral base, particularly in relation to promoting more equitable healthcare access for those with HIV? One of the things I've been thinking about is, is there a way that we can use the current system to try and work to women's advantage, for instance? So instead of perhaps fighting against all of the ideology that is coming out, could we perhaps use some of that rhetoric to try and enable women uh, to access HIV care? And Najma has looked at some of this in her thesis, but one of the things that often stops women approaching medical institutions for help is that they'll be seen as a bad mother. So if we could somehow change that rhetoric and say that actually as a good mother, empower women to therefore go and seek help from doctors and medical practitioners. And, and Najma has some great examples from her fieldwork of where women did precisely that, that they had the shame and they had the stigma, but they empowered themselves to go and front up at the hospital and say, yes, I am HIV positive and yes, I am pregnant and I need help now in order to be a good mother. So perhaps looking at some ways to use 
the quite restrictive narrative that is there to the benefit of women. And maybe also picking up on some of the sentiments of Panchasilla, which has been used quite destructively, I think, in many ways to criminalize the LGBT community and people who don't follow a particular religion. But is there something in Panchasilla and unity and diversity that can be redeployed to try and showcase that Indonesia should be celebrating this diversity, gender diversity, sexual diversity, for which it has a very long history of celebrating in certain capacities. So can that rhetoric of criminalizing sexuality be turned on its head and use some of those narratives to try and empower women? So I think it would be really interesting now to think about the uh, relationship between HIV and coronavirus or COVID in Indonesia. So could I start by asking you, Najma, to tell us first what Indonesia's response to COVID has been like? February and March, I was in New Zealand and then I went to Indonesia. So what I'm feeling during my journey is like in New Zealand and in Australia, it's like a war where people are aware to protect us as a passengers and protect all people, even in the airport. But when I come to Indonesia, it's, it seems like nothing happens. But interestingly, that Indonesian people have a good awareness. They use masks, it's self-protection. And in the airport also, they provide a lot of things to protect yourself. I should say thank you to Indonesian that to respond to initial outbreak, I'm proud to the Ministry of Education and culture of Indonesia, how he decided to program study at home in the early announcement of the first two cases in Indonesia. And this regulation is followed by other government sectors to work at home. And after four weeks of the first two cases announcement in Indonesia, Indonesia start to regulate PSPB or Pembatasan Sosial Berskala Besar or Large Scale Social Restrictions. So, all preventions can be considered as uh, Indonesian's innovation within the complex health system in Indonesia. With the regulation of PSPB or large-scale social restrictions, the central government they able to overcome COVID-19 by sharing their rules with the regional governments. I also should prod with Indonesian community. I concern of two things that I observed in Indonesia. Firstly, Indonesian people has spirit of gotong royong or work together to deal with this pandemic. What I observed from my social media and my life in Indonesia, I learned how society gathered charity to provide universal precaution equipment for health workers. And also they support the poor to provide rice and the basic needs for the poor. And with over 70% of Indonesian community who work in informal sectors, such as being a traders, it's not easy to ask them stay at home while the government has not provided enough economic support for them. And secondly, what I observed that it's an alternative for public health promotion to spread the information and also reduce the stigma surrounding COVID-19 in Indonesia. Indonesia is one of the countries who use Facebook and Instagram and other social media for their network. So in my experience, Sriwijaya University empowered their students to provide health promotion with local languages, simple languages, and spread the information through their social media. And having over 85% Muslim community in Indonesia, 
the government has empowered community to spread the information about COVID-19 through the most outdoor speakers that we used to call people prayers. So I believe it's a strength of Indonesia government to deal with that, despite of some challenges that also we deal in Indonesia. Thank you, Najma. I believe that Indonesia is, uh, now has the unfortunate distinction of having the highest number of infections in Southeast Asia. I think, I think it's around 5,900 in mid-April. And we're facing Ramadan and Mudik, where people return to their kampongs, um, and there's usually a lot of travel around this time of the year. Sharon, could you tell us what the numbers are and why the Indonesian government has been slow to respond? Its health minister in particular has been quite criticised for not doing enough testing. Part of the difficulty in Indonesia is just the sheer scale and size of it. But that aside, a real frustration with watching events unfold in Indonesia is that the issue has been politicised. And so in democracies where politicians have been able to come together and agree on a certain path, the success of testing and, and reducing rates has been much greater. Whereas in Indonesia with its populist tendencies, politicians have not come together. They've not been able to agree on a particular path forward. And making matters worse is that people in a lot of key positions were not appointed there because of their expertise. There were other reasons that they got appointed there. So they're not equipped with the knowledge of how to run a public health campaign in the midst of a pandemic. So we have that happening at that level. And then we also have challenges in terms of the healthcare system. So today, 20th of April, I checked the statistics today that were released. It's around 500 deaths, and that cannot possibly reflect the actual currents of that. So there have been people writing about the number of coffins that coffin makers are making, and the only explanation for the vast increase in deaths uh, has to be related to COVID. So there's just not the capacity for testing. So another statistic I saw was that currently Indonesia is doing 163 tests per million people, whereas Singapore is doing 16,000 tests. Um, so we know the rates are much higher than that. And we know that the government and the medical system is not equipped uh, at dealing with that. But there are a few things coming out of Indonesia that have really impressed me and, and make me remember all the wonderful things about Indonesia. One of them uh, Najma just mentioned, and that was her university making material available in local languages uh, and really looking at innovative ways to get that material out. And it's also that people in Indonesia do not generally expect the government to be able to come and help them. So in other countries, we look to our government to provide solutions. Indonesia is not necessarily used to that. And so a lot of grassroots organizations and Gotang Royong uh, have stepped up and different kampongs and communities who are really coming together and working together. That's something Indonesia has had a long track record of because they haven't relied on governments or security you know, networks or big medical systems. There's a quite a strong local community that can step in, but of course, not on the scale that is, is needed at the moment. Yeah, I think that's a, a really uh, lovely reminder of one of Indonesia's great strengths, and it is this community organising at the grassroots level. 
I'd like to map this discussion onto the HIV issue. So, um, and to think about what COVID means for women with HIV. What, what are some of the issues we're, we're gonna see arising out of this uh, spread of coronavirus in communities where HIV is prevalent? It's interesting about like how re I reflect during the COVID-19 that HIV positive women contact on me. Most of the Assam participants during my PhD, they said that, how about us? We are afraid to come to hospitals. You know that our community is not as strong as other people's. Some women are initiated to contact their doctors in the voluntary and counseling testing centers to seek their health, to send the drugs in, to their house. It's very interesting. And others are as a non-government organization related to HIV to help them to take the medicines uh, while others keep coming to the hospital. And Sharon, what about gender and sexual minorities more broadly in terms of their access to healthcare? Yeah, so in terms of access for lots of communities, with Indonesia's populist morality, anything that is seen as a disease or an illness that you acquire through being immoral, and HIV is absolutely seen as that. The main ways you get HIV are through sex or for intravenous drug use. So if you have HIV, doctors, the healthcare professionals and your whole community think often, very often, that you have HIV because you have been immoral and you have been sinful. So it is very difficult to access care and support at the best of times. Now with the healthcare resources so stretched, due to COVID-19, this is going to be even more difficult. And so immunocompromised people living with HIV, A, have to traverse the very risky terrain of trying to access medication and healthcare, but will have increased stigma attached to them for coming and trying to access that medicine. And I, I suspect there will be a level, a hierarchy of who should be given assistance. And this has always been the case with HIV being something that people think you wouldn't get if you had been a, a moral person. And we know, of course, that one of the fastest growing new rates for HIV is among heterosexually married women. So this supposedly most moral of positions because husbands might be sleeping with other people and, and there's no access to condoms no one can talk about this because it will bring shame on everybody. So there'll be this hierarchy of who can access care. And I think people with HIV will be, just be pushed further and further down the list, both because of COVID-19, but also because of this increasingly populist morality movement that's happening in Indonesia. I'd like to get a sense of what Indonesia needs to do going forward in terms of public health and what the future holds for Indonesia's public health care. So looking to the future for Indonesia, I think politically, they really have to think what is best for our country and bickering between political parties is not that. Trying to point score in a political arena is not what should be happening. There needs to be people appointed to key positions who have the requisite expertise and knowledge on how to deal with a public health crisis. And politicians need to come together to look at what is best for Indonesia and her citizens going forward into the long run. In many ways, it will be an ambulance at the bottom of the hill. There are so many 
healthcare concerns from malaria to dengue to tuberculosis in Indonesia that it is very difficult to make those stretched resources be effective in the time of COVID-19. But with political will that has seen politicians come together with key health experts, that will be a good way forward. And also making sure that those community level supports um, are operating so that small communities can make good decisions and have access to resources and support to support people on the ground. I'd like to thank you both for giving us such a fascinating overview of the intersection of these really important ideas and issues relating to illness, stigma, women, gender and religion. And I think it's really interesting you've given us a fantastic introduction to it today. Thank you both for your time. Thank you, Natalie. Bye, thank you. Thanks for listening to this podcast from the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. For more podcasts like this, Look up Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at soundcloud.com.